0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, sexual abuse, and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 45-year-old Gary Starr Adams felt something like cold feet as he skulked in the shadows of a cozy suburban house. He clenched a tire iron tightly in his right hand. No one else was home. He wondered if there was still time to turn back, but there wasn't. Just then, a set of headlights pierced the darkness outside the window. His friend, Glenn Harrelson, had returned. Every muscle in Gary's body tensed as he hunched in the hallway. It was do or die. As Glenn stepped through the front door, Gary raised the tire iron and swung hard. The blow struck Glenn's skull like a flash of lightning and knocked him to the ground. But Glenn, a brawny 45-year-old firefighter, wasn't down for long. He scrambled to his feet and stumbled forward, groping wildly in the dark. Gary pounced on Glenn like a panther, pinning him to the floor. Glenn looked into his attacker's icy blue eyes with a mixture of terror and confusion. Gary almost felt pity as he watched Glenn connect the dots. There was only one reason his friend would do this, the black widow who'd ensnared both of them in her twisted web. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. This week, we're covering the toxic love affairs of Sharon Nelson Harrelson, forever hungry for sex, money, and attention Sharon burned through three marriages and dozens of affairs in record time during the 1980s. But there was perhaps only one man she ever truly loved Gary Starr Adams, a strapping mountain man who was completely in her thrall. Gary vowed to do anything for Sharon. He wouldn't let anyone stand in the way of their happiness. Next week, We'll discuss the explosive crime that rocked a small Colorado community in 1988 and the chaotic investigation that followed. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be.
0: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Sharon Lynn Douglas grew up in the 1950s, a golden age for carefree, fun-loving American teenagers. But there were no sock hops and drive-in movies for her. As devout Seventh-day Adventists, the Douglas family followed a strict set of rules. They didn't drink, smoke, eat meat, listen to secular music, watch movies, or wear makeup and jewelry. Their beliefs isolated young Sharon from other children in her small Maryland community. In many ways, Jesus was the only friend she had as a girl. She wasn't even allowed to play with her older sister, Judy, not because of her religion, but because the thought of children laughing or frolicking was too much for their mother, Josephine. Josephine ruled her house with an iron fist. She was strikingly beautiful, but ice cold and forever out of reach. She was so determined to keep others at a distance that she reportedly rarely even smiled. She believed her sole job as a parent was to protect her children from eternal damnation cuddling and nurturing were not productive but she didn't shy away from prescribing excessive prayer or dishing out brutal beatings anytime her daughters misbehaved before i cover Sharon's psychology please note i am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist but i have done a lot of research for the show Experts have proven that lack of affection and nurturing in childhood can lead to issues forming social bonds later in life. According to Dr. Lee Raby, a professor of developmental psychology, the type of emotional support that a child receives during the first three and a half years has an effect on education, social life, and romantic relationships even 20 or 30 years later. Sharon never knew real love in her youth, and thus was unable to recognize it as she grew older. The only affection she was ever shown by her parents came from her father Morris. Morris was a strict man, but had more patience than his wife. Sharon savored the rare occasions on which he would take her out and buy her a soda away from the prying eyes of his wife. Despite the occasional indulgence, Sharon was terrified of her parents as a young girl. She was afraid to do or say anything that would garner her family unwanted attention and earn her punishment. So she learned to keep secrets. At school one day, a janitor lunged at Sharon in an empty hallway and fondled her in the school storage closet. Later, an older member of their Seventh-day Adventist congregation slipped his hand up her skirt in the backseat of a car. Sharon never breathed a word about these incidents to her family as she was too afraid of causing trouble. Instead, she swallowed her pain. The threat of harsh reprisal along with constant rhetoric about her inherent sinfulness, likely kept Sharon extremely fearful of stepping out of line. Some psychologists argue that growing up in a hyper-religious home can negatively affect a child's self-esteem and push them towards self-destructive behavior later in life. A study published in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry found that parents and children agree that parental religiousness is associated with more controlling parenting and in turn, increased child problem behaviors. While Sharon spent much of her time frozen in fear at the thought of breaking the rules, the harsh discipline had the opposite effect on her sister, Judy. As Judy grew older, she became rebellious, smoking cigarettes and talking to boys outside of school. Judy saw her parents, especially her mother, as her wardens. After one especially bad beating, she even ran to the police to ask for help. Though she was promptly sent back home, she refused to stay. At some point later on, she ran away from home. Her taste of freedom was short-lived, however. She was found the very next night and was sent off to a reform school as punishment. Sharon was never told where her sister disappeared to or why. When Judy returned home a few months later, Sharon had no idea where she'd been and was too scared to ask. Perhaps to make up for Judy's bad behavior, Sharon tried her best to be perfect. Even after she graduated high school, she felt compelled to do whatever her parents asked, which is why at age 20, she accepted the marriage proposal of Mike Fuller, an Adventist preacher. Mike was far from Prince Charming, but as Sharon's parents reminded her, he was stable, clean, and bound for better things. When she got cold feet before the wedding, Sharon's parents refused to listen to her protests. For them, love wasn't part of the equation. They threatened to disown her if she backed out of the engagement. Sharon told herself that Mike could take her away from Maryland and the haunting memories of her lonely childhood. He could be her lifeline, but no matter how she tried, she still couldn't love him. On November 25th, 1963, 20-year-old Sharon shuffled down the aisle, lonelier than ever. Heartbroken as she was, she made a beautiful bride in a white lace dress. She was old enough now to notice how her looks drew the eyes of other men. Part of her wondered if the affection she was desperate for lay behind those furtive glances. After the wedding, Mike's preaching took the young couple to Ohio, where they bounced from church to church. To the outside world, they were a perfect pair, bound by their devotion to God. But to Sharon, being a preacher's wife was just more of the same. It was all about maintaining appearances. She was expected to sit in the front pew of service every Saturday, smiling politely. She had to spend hours each week typing up sermons and newsletters, which bored her. She was obligated to serve up punch at church functions and be friendly to everyone she met. It was dull, exhausting work. In order to survive, she started to rebel in secret ways. Away from the watchful eyes of her husband, she listened to secular music, watched popular movies, and even took up drinking and smoking. By 1968, five years into their marriage, the Fullers had settled in Cleveland, a major city with its own countercultural revolution. Embracing the freedom the new move offered, 25-year-old Sharon's wild streak grew even bolder. Despite Mike's protests, she began dressing less modestly and drinking more openly. She also got a job as a secretary at a local print shop. While she did not necessarily like the work, she enjoyed the attention she got from one of her bosses. He was twice her age and was married, but none of that stopped Sharon. He gave her the tenderness and affection she so desperately needed. For the first time in her life, Sharon felt truly alive. Later that year, however, her rebellious new lifestyle hit a snag. When she became pregnant, she knew the baby wasn't her husband's, but she couldn't bear to tell him the truth. She lied to Mike and told him the child was his. Unsurprisingly, the news failed to bring the couple any closer. One evening, while she was still pregnant, Sharon fell asleep on the couch as Mike entertained some friends. At one point, she reportedly woke up from her nap to hear her husband telling their guests that he never really loved her. She had to bite her lip to keep from crying. Days later, Sharon walked along the thin rocky beach at the edges of Lake Erie. She was in her last trimester. She should have been full of life, but she felt dead inside. Mike's cruel words echoed in her head. He didn't feel anything for her. She was a millstone around his neck. It seemed like all Sharon had ever been was a burden, passed from cruel parents to a cold husband. The one time she thought she had glimpsed true romance, she was punished with a child she didn't want. Here she was, young, hopeless, and utterly alone, fated to bring another child into a family devoid of love. Sharon decided she would break the cycle here and now. She dipped a foot into the freezing water, and then another. She looked at the setting sun, a last taste of beauty before her misery finally ended. Then she waded into the lake until the water cleared her shoulders. It was so cold. She paused to catch her breath, teeth chattering. In those few seconds of rest, Sharon saw Mike's smug face in her mind. She realized that she'd be doing him a favor by ending her own life. There was still hope in her heart. She wouldn't let people control her anymore. She would live in spite of them. A couple of days after her near suicide, Sharon confronted Mike about her unhappiness. She wanted out of their marriage, plain and simple. To her surprise, Mike begged her to reconsider. He worried that getting a divorce would compromise his reputation as a preacher. He swore to Sharon that he'd try to fix what was broken. Sharon wasn't sure if she believed him, but she was also terrified at the prospect of supporting a new baby on her own. She decided to stay. On June 1st, 1969, Sharon gave birth to a little girl named Rochelle. Despite his promises, the very next day, Mike left town for a church revival. It set the tone for the next few months. While Sharon struggled to adjust to motherhood, Mike constantly complained about the new baby. After a few months of tense arguments, Sharon reached her breaking point. During a particularly fierce fight, she exploded at Mike, telling him that he wasn't Rochelle's biological father. The words hit the preacher like a ton of bricks. He demanded to know the name of the real father, threatening to kick Sharon out of the house unless she told him the truth. With no other option, Sharon told Mike her lover's name. She watched in horror as her husband grabbed his keys and sped off into the night. He had a murderous look in his eyes. Next. Mike rushes to confront Sharon's boss about the affair. Hi, listeners. Have you heard Parcast's newest original series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join My Good Friend host Alastair Merton as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: In 1969, 26-year-old Sharon Fuller admitted to her husband, Mike, that she had an affair with another man. Furious, Mike got in his car and raced to confront her lover. Worried that her husband might do something violent, Sharon called one of Mike's friends and begged them to intervene. The friend rushed to her lover's home, luckily arriving just as Mike pulled into the driveway. After a lengthy heart-to-heart, Mike calmed down and returned home. He promised once again to try and strengthen their marriage if Sharon agreed to break off the affair. Sharon told Mike she would do whatever it took to stay together. In 1971, the couple moved to Durham, North Carolina. Three years later in 1974, they welcomed a second daughter, Denise, into the world. But all the while, Sharon and Mike grew further apart. By 1975, 32-year-old Sharon was once again desperate for love. Mike still wasn't giving her what she wanted, yet expected her to be the perfect preacher's wife at all times. The stress led Sharon to seek comfort in the arms of a parishioner at Mike's church named Craig. In many ways, Craig was the opposite of Mike. He was kind, tender, and affectionate. He doted on her daughters. He introduced her to poetry that made her heart sing. He was also a generous lover, giving her pleasure she'd never known before. As the affair went on, Sharon began to think about leaving her husband again. She'd never want to break up her family, but by now she'd endured years of lonely nights and bitter arguments. Wracked with indecision, she drove her two girls down to her parents' home without telling Mike, She needed time to think. She needed guidance. Her mother and father, however, were not happy to see her. When she told them she was considering a divorce, they were scandalized. Her mother, Josephine, was especially upset. She had always tried to teach Sharon that money, security, and godliness were the most important things in life. She threatened to disown her daughter if she divorced Mike. Afraid of being a single mother without any support, Sharon reluctantly returned to North Carolina. As it turned out, Mike was well aware of his wife's latest affair and had secured a transfer to another church in Colorado. If Sharon wanted to remain his wife, then he expected her to follow along. Sharon's heart shattered as she said goodbye to her lover Craig one last time. He didn't ask her to stay. He understood, or perhaps he was happy to end their romance before both their lives were ruined. Sharon sat in the passenger seat, window down as the only happiness she'd ever known disappeared in the rear view. The girls fussed in the back, their cries blending with the rushing wind. Over it all, she could hear Mike's cruel words ringing in her ear. He blamed her for the move, claiming everyone in Durham knew about her affair. He called her names, insulting the way she dressed and acted. He didn't understand that the tight dresses and bleach blonde hair made her feel good about herself. They were the only things in her life that gave her pleasure. Sharon turned toward the window so Mike wouldn't see the tears in her eyes. She already knew things weren't going to change anytime soon. She just hoped they wouldn't get any worse. As Sharon expected, the first few weeks in Colorado were hard. Mike was assigned to preach in two small towns eight miles apart while she languished at home. Beyond staring at mountain ranges, there was little to do. Making matters worse, the family had to live in a motel because the house Mike had rented was a wreck. Sharon grew stir-crazy in the small room, desperate for anything to take her mind off her troubles. So when the family was invited to dinner with some elders at the local church, she jumped at the chance for a night off. The meal was hosted by 43-year-old Perry Nelson, a church elder and beloved optometrist in the region. It wasn't uncommon for patients to travel up to 50 miles to see Perry's handsome, smiling face whenever they needed new glasses. In addition to being friendly, Perry won over his clients with his honest humility. His sole indulgences seemed to be his plane and his motorhome but behind closed doors, he had a weakness for other women. His wife, Julie, had forgiven her husband in the past, but nothing could make her entirely forget his infidelity. Naturally then, Julie, along with most of the other women in attendance at the dinner, took an immediate dislike to Sharon. One woman later said it was clear Sharon was on the hunt for a new man, even then. Perry, on the other hand, hit it off with Sharon and Mike right away. After the meal, he convinced Julie to invite the Fuller family on a hiking trip with them. At one point on the trail, he and Sharon ended up walking alone. The chemistry was instant. Both of them could feel a spark. Soon, Perry was head over heels. He couldn't stop talking about how beautiful the preacher's wife was. At work, He often mentioned Sharon to his secretary, Barb Rossetti. Barb adored her boss, but she could tell right away that the doctor was playing with fire. Even so, it was still shocking when Perry announced that Sharon would be joining the office staff. When she arrived late on her first day and dressed to do anything but work, Barb saw trouble on the horizon. The flirtation between the doctor and the doctor's doll, as Barb called her, quickly escalated. They were shameless. Meanwhile, Perry's wife could feel him slipping away. She'd been there before. She could hear the excitement in his voice as he gushed about what a great employee Sharon was. It crushed her. Her worst fears were confirmed in the summer of 1976 when 31-year-old Sharon consummated their affair in Perry's motorhome. For months afterward, they snuck around like teenagers. They lied to their spouses and planned covert rendezvous. They even used their friends as covers for the affair. The whole thing was messy and brazen, which was apparently how Sharon preferred it it didn't take long for word to spread. When Barb confronted her boss about his reckless behavior, he told her he wanted to marry Sharon. The admission left Barb speechless. She thought for sure the relationship had only been a fling. She couldn't see how Perry could think it was a good idea to leave his wife. As odd as it sounds, it's possible that he decided to commit to Sharon as a way to morally justify their affair. Psychologists have found that serial cheaters often rationalize their bad behavior with a number of cognitive tricks. In a study conducted by psychologist, Dr. Joshua D. Foster, cheaters were found to often trivialize their behavior to make themselves feel better about their indiscretions. They tell themselves each time is different from the last. Since he had cheated before, Perry might've sought to make his affair with Sharon out to be a unique exception He couldn't just be indulging his whims. By marrying her, he could believe that he had found true love and justify the relationship. Meanwhile, Sharon's husband, Mike, trying to ignore his wife's infidelity at first. Unfortunately, he couldn't control the gossip. Things eventually got so out of hand that two of his neighbors confronted him face to face. Mike listened to their suspicions, but denied them all, decrying them as baseless rumors. The encounter struck his neighbors as profoundly strange. It didn't feel like Mike actually believed what he was saying as he turned them away. Instead, it seemed like he was trying to cover up for his wife. It felt to them as if he had been down this road before. Just a few days later, Sharon mysteriously disappeared. Neither she nor her seven-year-old daughter Rochelle came home at all one night. In a panic, Mike drove over to the Nelsons' home the next morning and found that Perry was also missing. He and Julie Nelson soon tracked their spouses to a motel in a nearby town. Because Rochelle hadn't shown up for school that day, Mike was able to convince the local sheriff to unlock the motel room door for him. He barged in to see his wife barely clothed, lying in bed and watching TV with Rochelle. He could hear Perry showering in the other room. He couldn't believe Sharon had exposed their child to her indecency. Enraged, Mike barreled past Sharon into the bathroom. He ripped open the shower curtain and stared Perry down. He didn't bother throwing any punches. There was nothing he had to say. Julie, on the other hand, had plenty of words for her husband. She told Perry she wanted a divorce. She'd take him for all he was worth. Not for the first time, Mike gave Sharon an ultimatum. He was done giving her chances. Either she broke things off with Perry and stayed faithful to him, no matter what, or their marriage was over once and for all. Sharon was torn. She didn't love Mike, but she worried about losing her children if they went through a divorce. Desperate for help, she turned to a Christian counselor and family friend in Fort Worth, Texas. After two weeks of phone sessions, the therapist told Mike and Sharon that their marriage was worth salvaging. Sharon reluctantly agreed to give up Perry. She got a new job she hated and spent her nights drinking alone. But no matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get Perry out of her mind. After talking things out with her sister, Julie, she decided that she would never be happy with Mike. Being with Perry was worth the risk of losing her girls. She wanted their passion, she wanted his love, and she wanted to be a doctor's wife. After Sharon divorced Mike, Perry's wife, Julie, could see the writing on the wall. She got the divorce she wanted and moved her daughters west. With no one between them any longer, 32-year-old Sharon married Perry in New Mexico in 1977. Six months later, in March of 1978, Sharon gave birth to a son named Danny. After years, it seemed that Sharon Fuller Nelson had everything she wanted, but she wouldn't stay satisfied for long. When we return, Sharon finds being a doctor's wife is not as glamorous as it seems. Now back to the story. In 1979, 34-year-old Sharon Fuller Nelson had it all, a handsome doctor for a husband, a bouncing baby boy, and a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. It should have been a dream come true, but instead it was a nightmare. Locals in her small Colorado community refused to accept Sharon no matter who she was married to. They still whispered when she walked by. They still gossiped about her blood-red nails, dazzling short shorts, and bleach-blonde hair. Though they respected her husband, Perry, they looked down on her as a home wrecker. Their attitudes only encouraged Sharon's attention-seeking behavior. She started working at her husband's optometry office again— and took total control of his finances. Perry's trusty secretary, Barb, saw Sharon regularly helping herself to whatever cash was on hand. No amount of money seemed to be enough. Sharon spent many of her mornings shopping, buying whatever she desired. When she did come to work, she found actually doing her job to be impossible. She regularly snapped at the patients gradually thinning out her husband's business. While many in the region still loved Perry, they felt compelled to find a new doctor. They simply couldn't stand his new wife. There couldn't have been a worse time for Perry's finances to take a nosedive. He owed a ton in alimony and child support for his first wife, Julie, and now Sharon was bleeding him dry. No matter what happened, though, Perry refused to tell his new wife no. Whatever she wanted, she got, including a massive new house, which Sharon had built from the ground up in an isolated area known as Wet Canyon. It didn't matter to her that the place was too remote for phone lines or that the water would need to be fetched from a well. She wanted a shining house on a hill. When construction was completed, she moved in right away along with Perry and baby Danny her ex-husband Mike had fought for custody of their two daughters and had won. Then he'd move away to Ohio. His absence isolated Sharon even more. All she had was Perry, and she wanted him all to herself. After chasing off his friends, neighbors, and customers, Sharon set her sights on his youngest daughter. Lori Nelson couldn't believe she fell for her evil stepmother's tricks. She quivered on the bed in her boarding school dorm, trying to bite back tears. It was the first time Perry had ever hit her. She had always been close to her father. She loved being his favorite youngest daughter. Even throughout the divorce, she remained close to him. She even tried to like her new stepmother who claimed she wanted to be Lori's friend. It was Sharon who taught Lori how to drink. She was the one who told the girl to sneak peppermint schnapps into her mouthwash at school. It was also Sharon apparently who had called the principal afterward and told him Lori had been smuggling alcohol onto campus. She had even encouraged Perry to drive up to the school and beat Lori until she learned her lesson. Lori couldn't forget the pain she felt when her father hit her with his belt the anger that had clouded his usually kind hazel eyes. She sobbed. She had always been a good daughter, a daddy's girl. Never in her wildest dreams did she imagine her father could do that to her. Eventually, Lori's sadness turned to anger. It was all Sharon's fault. Because of her, Lori was expelled. Feeling betrayed, she cut her father out of her life once and for all. Perry was left alone as Sharon continued to burn through his money. By 1981, a year after he and Sharon had a daughter named Misty, he was struggling to make ends meet. He owed hundreds of thousands in back taxes and had spent a fortune on their new mountain home, which Sharon had dubbed the Roundhouse. Worst of all, his optometry practice was failing. Sharon had scared away most of his customers, Things got so bad that Barb's paycheck started bouncing. Money problems are among the most difficult issues that married couples face. In a 2019 study, psychologist Dr. Michelle Jean noted, although it is difficult to determine the frequency of financial arguments among couples, financial issues can lead to divorce. For Sharon and Perry, it certainly caused friction. Sharon was furious that the family was forced to pinch pennies. She had wanted a comfortable life with Perry and refused to compromise. She vented her frustrations to her husband's best friend, a man named Buzz Reynolds. With Buzz, she found a sympathetic ear and it wasn't long before she found even more. After a whirlwind romance, Sharon broke the news to Perry. She told him that she was leaving the roundhouse to live with Buzz. She wanted to be separated. Perry was as heartbroken as the locals were scandalized. It seemed Sharon and Buzz had no shame. While Perry continued to drown in debt, she had found a lifeboat just for herself. There was no doubt about it. Perry Nelson had hit rock bottom, Not only was his life in shambles, but Sharon was taunting him. She continued to run up bills on his credit cards even after she left the home. Feeling lower than ever, Perry looked for solace at the bottom of a bottle. Though he had mostly adhered to the Adventist tenet of sobriety his entire life, he became a desperate drinker. His sunny personality darkened and he started swearing and lashing out at those around him. One day at the office, he told Barb that he wanted to end it all. He didn't fear hell, he told her. He was living in it already. After that dark statement, Perry's friends rallied around him. As time went on, he rebounded somewhat. He reconciled with his daughter Lori in time to walk her down the aisle, His loved ones hoped that eventually Perry would be able to get over Sharon and rebuild his life. All the while, Sharon and Buzz were living it up on Buzz's sprawling ranch, but their dreams of a never ending party came crashing down to earth when Sharon learned she was pregnant. It was a deal breaker for Buzz, who promptly kicked Sharon out of the house. With nowhere else to turn, she tried to crawl back to Perry, but he turned her away. In a fit of rage, he swore to her that he would never raise another man's child. Hoping it would persuade her husband to take her back, Sharon got an abortion. She languished in a dirt cheap apartment by herself for a few months and was eventually able to convince Perry to give her another chance. In March of 1982, the month her son Danny turned four, Perry let her come back to the roundhouse. His friends and family were stunned. They warned him that Sharon was playing with his heart and draining him dry. The news was especially hard on his secretary, Barb, who had known him for years. When Sharon left him after wrecking his medical practice, it was Barb who had picked up the pieces. Now, not only was Sharon back in Perry's life, she was once again working at his office. Very quickly, it became clear that Sharon and Barb would never get along. In a show of spectacular callousness, Sharon had Perry fire Barb after decades of service. But even then, she wasn't done twisting the knife. Barb soon learned that her unemployment claim was denied because Perry hadn't paid the taxes he owed. Barb believed Sharon had pocketed the money instead. But when she told Perry that his wife was embezzling money while his business fell into ruin, Perry came to Sharon's defense. He claimed the non-payment had simply been an accident. His denials were too much for Barb. She screamed perhaps the ugliest words she had ever uttered in her life at Perry, and she meant them. She couldn't believe how thoroughly Sharon was ruining her friend's life. Not for the first time, Perry refused to listen to reason. 37-year-old Sharon had her claws in him deeper than ever before, and she intended to do whatever she wanted. On Halloween night in 1982, Sharon threw a massive party to show off her lavish home. Dressed as Scarlett O'Hara, she looked more seductive than ever. There was a reason. She had her eyes on one of the guests. Gary Starr Adams was a happily married father of two who lived in a modest shack in the Colorado wilderness. His dude ranch sat right at the bottom of the hill the roundhouse was built on top of. Gary wasn't Sharon's usual type, but he was ruggedly handsome with a disarming smile. That night, he was dressed as a leather-clad mountain man Muscular and strapping with bright blue eyes, he looked every bit the part. As the sun set, Sharon came to life, making sure all of her guests were smiling with a drink in their hands. When the time was right, she'd make her move on Gary. With both of their spouses just feet away, she stalked up to the mountain man and asked him to dance. She pressed her body close to his and started to explore the slick surface of his pants. She loved leather, she purred in his ear. Gary had no idea that his life had just changed forever. From then on, he would never be free from Sharon's embrace. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion, We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Sharon's story. We'll follow her as she ensnares Gary in her twisted web and convinces him to cross the ultimate line for her. For more information on Sharon Nelson amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Bitch on Wheels by Greg Olson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crime of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Ian Olympio, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, listeners, don't forget to check out the gripping new podcast original series, Medical Murders. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.